Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Hello. So welcome to the first of the um, GP webinars that um, we're putting on. I'm Camilla Janssen. I'm a GP working in the New Forest in Hampshire, and I'm also a sessional representative for the LMC. And more recently, we've been involved in developing a rolling educational programme for GPs in conjunction with Wessex GP Educational Trust and the LMC. So this is the first of a series of 12 one-hour educational webinars that we're putting on. We've also planned some interesting half-day webinars, and um, there's a list of all these offerings on the LMC website or on the Wessex GP Education Trust website. So today we're going to have a 45-minute presentation from Paul Cook. Um, we're going to follow that with a 15-minute question and answer session, and we're going to wrap up promptly at one o'clock. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Paul Cook. Thank you for coming along. He's a consultant in chemical pathology and metabolic medicine at Southampton University, uh, Southampton Hospital, sorry. And um, he's going to talk to us about dealing with abnormal blood test results in primary care. So thank you, Paul, and looking forward to your talk. So afternoon, everybody. Um, it's obviously an enormous um, subject, and really I've just chosen things that um, come up frequently, and it's a quick rattle through um, and really a prompt for some, maybe some questions later on. So first thing and very quickly is um, I'm really trying uh, to increase um, contact with general practitioners. So you can either ring me directly on the number there, emails, and also my team um, have a, a duty biochemist email, which um, you're very welcome to use as well. So there are a number of issues with blood tests. Um, they provide a number, but that number may not be right or it may be misleading and there are things that can go wrong in the process. So that could be the so-called pre-analytical phase, the, the bit before the blood's got into the bottle or maybe the, a good example of that would be droplet contamination of EDTA where you can go, cause a pseudo-hyperkalemia. Um, there are interferences that can occur with our assays and they're actually not as infrequent as one might uh, think they are. And then the so-called post-analytical phase, where I think the biggest problem there is, is how one interprets blood results. And I think this concept of normality um, is, is quite important. And probably what's even more important is whether you believe that the, the biochemical results that you've, you've received is actually consistent with the clinical findings. And without a doubt, your clinical instincts trump anything that um, we as a lab produce. So I'm sure most of you know this, but reference intervals or reference ranges are derived from a healthy population. And by definition, uh, the reference range or reference interval that's chosen um, is plus or minus two standard deviations from the mean. So that means in a normal so-called healthy person, 5% of results will be abnormal or one in 20 so-called normal people will have an abnormal result. And by inference, the more tests that are requested on an individual, then the more likely an abnormal result will occur just by statistics and not by pathology. So for 10 tests, that's not an unusual number to be requested, then the probability of getting a, an abnormal result that is just by statistical chance alone is 40%. And then for 20 tests, that's 64%. And because we have highly automated multi-channel analysis with electronic requesting, then um, 
high volume request is not that unusual. It goes without saying really that there isn't uh, a demarcation between normal and abnormal, but in a, in a disease sense. Um, and an abnormal result doesn't <clears throat> definitely mean somebody's got a pathological process. And more importantly, normality um, as well doesn't exclude a pathological process. But the more severe the abnormality, then the more likely it's abnormal and rep represents a, a disease process. But this is an interesting, this is a study that was done many, many years ago. And it was in actually when ventilation perfusion scanning was used for um, diagnosis of pulmonary emboli. But the principle remains the same, that the relevance of a test result is very much dependent on one's prior probability of what you think that patient has. So in this setting, if you've got a high clinical uh, suspicion that uh, the patient had a pulmonary embolism and the scan was high probability, then essentially they've got it. And then equally, if you've got a low clinical probability and a low scan probability, then they haven't got it. But you'd be fairly certain of that. The thing that I really wanted to point out here was the, um, the fact that if you've got a high clinical suspicion and the scan probability is low, there's still actually a pretty high chance that that patient's got the condition that you're thinking about. So it comes back again to um, clinical judgment um, is far more important than the blood results that we provide in the laboratory. So we'll move on to some specific analytes now, things that seem to crop up quite frequently and um, phone calls and emails that I tend to get. So vitamin D is very topical and I would say there's a, an epidemic of um, vitamin D requesting. And really vitamin D, the classic manifestations of vitamin D deficiency are, are rickets in children and osteomalacia in, in adults, so true bone demineralization. And there was no doubt at all that vitamin D supplementation um, is indicated in that, 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 that's unequivocally indicated. However, in the medical press, um, as well as the lay press, um, there's a large number of studies that associate things like cancers, metabolic syndrome, infectious disorders, autoimmune conditions with low vitamin D. And these are associations, they're not causations. And this has really raised the profile of vitamin D. Um, but as things currently stand, there's, there's been no trials really to support um, treatment of low vitamin D either to prevent those conditions or, or, or to treat them. Um, we know it's a pro-hormone and its main role, <clears throat> active role, is the absorption of calcium from the gut. And the key thing is that the most of the vitamin D that we utilize um, is derived from the action of ultra B, ultraviolet B radiation, in other words, sunlight um, in the skin, and very little of it is derived from um, food sources, uh, which is why um, there is a high prevalence of low vitamin D when we, when we test for it. Um, it's converted in the liver um, with a 25-hydroxylation, and 25-hydroxyvitamin D has a very uh, long half-life and is used in measurement because it accurately reflects the, the, the body stores um, that, that we have. Um, although it is biologically inactive and it requires conversion to the active form 125-dihydroxyvitamin D. Um, we don't measure 125-hydroxyvitamin D 
because that is the, the last thing to, to drop um, in true vitamin D deficiency because it's the active hormone and doesn't reflect stores very well at all. So the real question is, who, who, who should we be measuring vitamin D on? Uh, and there's a, a sort of graded scale here. So one might uh, test on asymptomatic healthy individuals, and I think it's pretty clear that that definitely should not occur. And then what about asymptomatic individuals who are at high risk of vitamin D deficiency? And we'll come on to that group in a bit. And then patients, but I think where it's no doubt it's indicated, are patients with symptoms that could reasonably be attributed to vitamin D deficiency. And we'll come on to what those symptoms might be. And then patients with diseases with outcomes that are known to be improved with vitamin D treatment, like confirmed diagnosis of osteomalacia or patients with osteoporosis. So the groups at high risk of vitamin D are the pregnant or breastfeeding women, the, the more elderly population, those that are, have low sunlight exposure, those with darker skin so that they, the sunlight doesn't have the same effect on, for vitamin D formation, those on long-term anticonvulsants because um, enzyme induction causes the, the active form to be deplete, uh, to be uh, metabolized more quickly, and clearly those with malabsorption syndromes. And I think this is a question of philosophy. So you can either measure uh, vitamin D in this group, and if, if low, and we'll come on to that, the thorny topic of what, what low actually is, um, and then supplement as required. The, the downside of that, I suppose, is that... Um, that will that it, patients probably will need to have um, fairly regular uh, blood tests to ensure sufficiency. Or one could be pragmatic and say, "Well, look, this is the higher risk group. Um, we'll just prescribe upfront um, supplementation," and that's a, that's an individual decision. The clinical presentation of vitamin D deficiency is 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 um, fairly typical. So uh, proximal muscle weakness, so that's, that would be the thing that's responsible for the, the, the waddling gait that you see in, in children with rickets and um, uh, adults with osteomalacia, patients with diffuse bone pain, diffuse soft tissue pain. Bony deformity really is in uh, the growing um, bones in children, the bow-leggedness. Um, and then uh, stress fractures. Um, uh, but what absolutely is not a manifestation of vitamin D deficiency is tiredness. And the problem that we've got is that unlike a lot of other blood tests, when we measure vitamin D, often it is low. And so it reinforces, well, okay, I've got a, a set of symptoms in front of me. Uh, I test vitamin D, it's low, it must be that. And, and, and it largely isn't. And then we come on to the issue of, well, how do we define vitamin D deficiency? And that's in itself controversial. Um, there's no, certainly no international consensus. And the reason for that is there's two problems. One, about how one defines what vitamin D deficiency actually is. Um, and the second thing is, in truth, we're not very good at measuring it. So all labs um, have to have a, an internal quality control program. So that's to ensure that the tests that we're running every hour, every day are in control and, and correct. But also we have, we also submit for all the tests that we do, um, there's the so-called external quality assurance schemes, whereby we will receive um, 
samples and we measure, submit those results back, and then we're compared against our, our peers. And we can see here um, that there's multiple uh, analyzers that can measure vitamin D. And remember, this is a single sample sent out by uh, a central um, laboratory resource. And there is a huge spread of results here, ranging from about 10 nanomoles per liter and going up to about 46. So that's a massive spread. And the significance of that is that single test cuts across. Um, you can classify somebody as deficient or probably sufficient, uh, depending on where that test is undertaken. So we're not very good at measuring it. Um, so these definitions of um, vitamin D deficiency are from the Royal Osteoporosis Society. And this is their current up, up uh, most recent definition. So less than 25 is, is deemed as definitely deficient. Um, the problem with that is these cutoffs are not, are not specific to particular methodologies or particular analyzers, <clears throat> and they're very much ballpark. Um, but they're, they're, they're a, they sort of work if the right patients are, are selected um, for, for measurement. Another um, common problem that crops up are the patients with small increases in alkaline phosphatase and, and what to do with them. So alkaline phosphatase is found in liver, bone, placenta, intestine, and kidney, but most of the stuff that we measure in the blood um, is predominantly from liver and bone and in a roughly 50-50 um, combination. Because um, alkaline phosphatase is made in the placenta, you can see quite significant increases in pregnancy, and there are natural increases with age. But there was a, a group many years ago called the Pathology Harmonization Group, um, uh, who in their wisdom decided that they wanted to harmonize reference ranges, regardless of how it was measured across, um, across the country. And uh, the consequence of that is that A, they didn't take into account um, the age-related increases, and B, overnight, they changed the reference range. So, so we converted patients who had normal results into patients um, who had abnormal results, and clearly nothing had happened to the patients, uh, and that was very arbitrary. The other thing um, that we all know about is that in a, in a growing child, um, alkaline phosphatase is a dynamic process and um, will often be substantially increased. So small increases are common, um, but what one can be reassured about is that if it's an incidental finding, in other words, your patient is otherwise completely well, then um, patients with alkaline phosphatase is up to about one and a half times the upper reference limit. Um, didn't, didn't develop um, any significant um, Ill, uh, disease in, the, in two years follow-up. Um, so that one can be, I think, from that fairly, fairly reassured. So I think when one's faced with a raised alkaline phosphatase, we've got to ask ourselves a fundamental question. And the fundamental question is, is this liver or is this bone in origin? Now, of course, there will be situations whereby it might be both, but for the most part, it is either bone or liver. And in order to do that, we would need to have a full set of liver function tests and a gamma GT. And the gamma GT, if normal, tells us that this is non-hepatic. 
in origin and by definition the most likely bone. So if we have a situation where we have a raised alkaline phosphatase with a normal gamma GT, then the commonest cause, if there is a pathology going on, would be vitamin D deficiency. One thing I think is really worth um, emphasizing with any blood test actually is historical data. So one can often be very, very reassured if one goes back and tracks through all the, all the alkaline phosphatases that have been undertaken by, um, in the past. If they've been at a similar level for years, then we know there is not a sinister um, underlying pathology and we could probably totally ignore it. If it's a new reading or there's a small or there's an increase, then the next step would be to check vitamin D. And if, the, if, if vitamin D is un, unequivocally low, then we should replenish that, follow up with uh, a repeat blood test in three months uh, and see where we're at. And if less than 1.5 um, and it's stable, then do nothing and don't repeat it unless clinically indicated. And I'm just emphasize, I must emphasize here, this is in the investigation of patients who are well, and this is very much an incidental finding. Clearly, if there are wiring features, so somebody might have some uh, weight, uh, loss of weight um, or uh, other uh, bone pain or other wiring features, uh, then we take these things much more seriously. If your follow-up alkaline phosphatase is greater than 1.5, the upper limit of normal, and you don't have historical data to reassure you, or it's rising, then I think there's a very, it's very reasonable to go on and do a bone scan. And the underlying reason for that is not because you're suspecting an underlying malignancy or metastatic disease. It's to pick up uh, a, mainly asymptomatic Paget's disease. And the advantage of that is that you can label the patient, you can say a raised alkaline phosphatase of 210 units per litre, for example, uh, is due to a small area of Paget's disease, which in itself doesn't require treatment, and we can put it to bed. So I'm a, a great believer, really, in trying to establish the exact cause for these abnormalities so that we don't get into a cycle of continually repeating them uh, I suppose, in a sense, hoping that they're going to improve, which often they don't. If the, uh, on the other hand, if the gamma GT is increased, then this certainly um, in proportion to, um, to, to the alkaline phosphatase, um, then this is a strong indication that we've got a, a hepatobiliary contribution. It doesn't exclude bone, but what we do know is that there is a liver contribution. And the first thing to do here is to make sure that um, there hasn't been a, a, an introduction of a drug um, that has caused um, some mild intrahepatic cholestasis. So the temporal relationship to the prescription of drugs and abnormal liver function test is really, really helpful. Again, if it's less than 1.5, the upper limit of normal, it's reasonable to recheck in three months. But in this case, with a raised gamma GT, if it is persistently raised, um, then one should investigate. Um, if it's greater than 1.5 from the outset, then investigation is, is justified um, straight away. And because the gamma GT and alkaline phosphatase, um, gamma GT is made in the, the um, biliary cells, then what we're really um, interested in uh, is, and these are isolated increased ALPs, I might add, not patients with abnormal um, aminotransferases, then... Um, 
liver ultrasound scan to exclude um, a, uh, a tumor, be it primary or metastatic, or dilated bile ducts that suggest perhaps um, a gallstone or more sinister uh, um, uh, pancreatic head carcinoma, for example, and also anti-mitochondrial antibodies, which although um, primary biliary cirrhosis is rare, um, it's a simple test to do. And in a female, um, that is often a raised uh, ALP in a female. Um, it will be the first, could be the first manifestation. If investigation is normal and it's less than, and the alkaline phosphatase is below that cutoff, then um, a repeat in six months is fine. If not, uh, then a hepatology opinion should be sought. So really the key thing is a gamma GT and that will take you down the path. Now, often people uh, will request or think about alkaline phosphatase isoenzymes. And the vast majority of patients, it's not required. Um, what I would emphasize is what you're seeing here is a electrophoresis. So it's a very manual test and we'll take the lab, uh, depending on the number of samples, perhaps a day um, to, to process the samples. And you can imagine that a raised alkaline phosphatase is a very common finding. So we have to have some sort of demand management, which is why we use gamma GT as first line. But there will be situations whereby alkaline phosphatase isoenzymes are very helpful. So in the unexplained, significantly raised um, group with the normal gamma GT. And in that situation, actually, what we're looking for is not pathology, but funny things that can cause a raised ALP, but they've got absolutely no significance to the patient. So for example, here in lane two dash, these are intestinal bands and um, they will contribute to total alkaline phosphatase in the blood, but they have no consequence to the patient at all. And sometimes one can have a macro, uh, what we call a macro alkaline phosphatase, but for some reason an immunoglobulin will stick to an enzyme and it increases its half-life. And actually there's lots of um, compounds that, that can occur, amylase is, uh, is a common, uh, and others. And we could see that on the electrophoresis. So under selected circumstances, and ideally discussion with, with, with myself or one of my team, um, of course, we're very willing to do that. And it can resolve um, some unusual situations. Um, I was asked to talk a little bit about lipids. So back in 2014, um, we the NICE guidelines came out. And um, the first thing I was asked is to mention was, was to fast or not to fast for um, lipid uh, assessment. So nice, and I think the consensus now is fairly clear that that primary first um, lipid sample most definitely can be non-fasting because in the vast majority of patients, this is in the assessment for cardiovascular risk and you don't need to be fasting for a total cholesterol and an HDL and um, total cholesterol to HDL ratio. It is certainly reasonable um, to request uh, triglycerides as well. Um, but there are two situations where, on depending on what we find in that initial result, um, one should uh, go on and then do a fasting sample. So the first one is if the total cholesterol is greater than 7.5 millimoles per liter. And the other is if the... Um, triglycerides are greater than 10 millimoles per liter. And we'll come on to the reasons for why that should be. So the first thing is, 
in order to obtain an LDL cholesterol, which nowadays is less relevant, um, the sample must be fasting. And it's based on an old-fashioned equation called the Freeboard equation. So no lab in this country uh, directly measures LDL. It's a calculated parameter, and it's calculated from knowledge of the total cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and triglycerides, which we do measure. And it needs to be fasting. And also, the triglyceride concentration has to be less than 4.5 millimoles per liter, otherwise the equation is invalidated. Um, and the question is, why would we want an LDL cholesterol? And it's probably in this sort of situation. So this is not an un unusual um, uh, profile. And the key thing here is the LDL. So when we have a look at these lipid profiles, the most important thing we want to establish is what is the primary lipoprotein abnormality? And we know that fats in the blood are made up of all sorts of lipoproteins from HDL right up to chylomicrons. And we need to understand that. We need to understand the primary lipoprotein abnormality to make the right diagnosis and therefore the right therapeutics. And then the next issue is, is this a primary lipid disorder, in other words, inherited disorder, or is it a secondary to something else or a combination of the two? So raised LDL, things that can cause raised LDL as a secondary phenomenon on nephrotic syndrome, hypothyroidism, cardiostatic liver disease, etc. Obesity per se does not, and alcohol does not. So what are the causes of primary hypercholesterolemia? So the one that we definitely don't want to miss are the heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemias because of uh, the fact that these patients are born with a high cholesterol and have um, uh, ischemic heart disease and myocardial infarctions at a young age. But by far the commonest is the so-called polygenic hypercholesterolemia, the ragbag stuff, which is multifactorial, a combination of um, minor alterations in our genes and our metabolism and diet. So what we need to do is to initially exclude familial hypercholesterolemia. And the two key questions we've got to ask there is, is there a family history of premature coronary artery disease? And by that, we mean less than 50, year, uh, less than, um, 50 years of age and a second, de second degree relative or 60 years of age and a first degree relative. And is there a family history of a high LDL cholesterol? So for our index case, the key thing here is an LDL of greater than 4.9 millimoles per liter raises the possibility that this patient has heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. If they then have a family history of premature ischemic heart disease, they fulfill the clinical criteria for heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia and then should be referred for genetic testing, which will confirm or refute that diagnosis. Or if one can track down a first degree relative uh, that has an LDL cholesterol greater than 4.9 millimoles per liter, then again, that would be an indication for genetic testing. So non-fasting to start with, total cholesterol greater than 7.5, go on and do a fasting blood test, and that's to see and be able to calculate an LDL cholesterol for the, for the, um, to, for the suspicion of heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, which unequivocally gets treated, whereas patients with polygenic hypercholesterolemia um, uh, do not necessarily get treated straight away. So for heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, once diagnosed, we would treat from the age of 10 years of age upwards. 
So the question is, we've got somebody who hasn't got heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia clinically, although they've got an, L, an LDL of 6 um, or 5.5, whatever it is, um, they don't have a family history and they haven't got a family history of, uh, of an abnormal lipid profile. So in this situation, it's not about the LDL cholesterol. It's about their risk, their cardiovascular risk. Um, so we don't treat LDL cholesterols in isolation. We, we, we treat their cardiovascular risk. So that NICE guideline in 2014 talks about using QRISC-2. There's now a QRISC-3, which is available, and it's better because it includes other well-known risk factors for cardiovascular disease, such as severe mental illness, inflammatory disorders like SLE and rheumatoid, and also CKD. And I'm sure you all know we put the data in there and we come up with a percentage risk of disease, cardiovascular disease over the next 10 years. And the thing I really wanted to point out here is that the cholesterol to HDL ratio is just one small part of someone's overall risk. But of course, it's modifiable. So in this case, this patient's got a Q risk of 20%. Um, and nice recommend a threshold of 10% for initiating statin therapy for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease. And actually, in, at its, in its day, that was very controversial uh, and remains so. Um, so there was two camps, really, those that believed it was over-medicalization um, and those that believed that we should be getting on and treating almost everybody with statin therapy. Uh, and it's your philosophy, really, about um, what approach you take. I'm a 20% um, person on the basis that when one looks in the primary prevention setting, the number needs to treat is really quite large. So if we take all-cause mortality, which is the hardest and best endpoint, then the, all, uh, then the number needs to treat to prevent one death is 138 patients, which for an individual is really not great odds. If you want to be more generous and just go for events, then it, it's better at about 50. So there's no doubt that statin therapy uh, has had a profound impact on uh, ischemic um, cardiovascular disease and reducing its incidence um, at a population level. But the, the challenge we face is that we have to deal with, with individual patients. Another thing you might, uh, that was recommended by NICE back then, which you, and you may stumble across in the results, is this non-HDL cholesterol. So again, there are lots of people who believe in targets uh, to drive um, cholesterol down to, and that is established part of the guidelines, um, but, doesn't, but lacks an actually robust evidence base to support that. But nevertheless, uh, the guidelines mm -hmm. are very clear. And it used to be LDL cholesterol. So the, 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 the disadvantage of LDL, of course, is it has to be fasting. Um, but the other thing is that we can use non-HDL. So non-HDL cholesterol um, is the cholesterol content of all lipogenic lipoprotein particles. So that's LDL and including this lipoprotein little a cholesterol. Um, and is easily calculated because all it is is the total cholesterol minus the HDL cholesterol. And it can be done in a non-fasting state. And NICE guidelines um, recommend that uh, you aim, one aims for a 40% reduction in non-HDL cholesterol on starting statin therapy. So if you start with a torvastatin, 20 milligrams once daily, recheck. And if you haven't achieved that reduction, then um, 
in theory, the recommendation is that you should then increase incrementally until you get to the top dose of 80 milligrams once daily. Um, in terms of uh, follow-up, then um, there's no role, and we'll come on to this in a bit, for routine measurement of creatine kinase, CK, unless they are symptomatic. Um, but there is a recommendation to measure uh, transaminases at 3 and 12 months. But, again, as long as the ALT remains less than three times the upper limit of normal, it is perfectly reasonable to continue statin therapy. There's a huge debate um, around um, the prevalence of so-called statin intolerance and mainly linked to muscle. Um, when you ask patients, uh, then it's 20%. When it's blinded in trials, it's 2%. And um, the uh, patient, um, people like Peter uh, Sever uh, is very passionate about this and believes very strongly there's this so-called nocebo effect, which is a detrimental effect on health produced by psychological or psychosomatic factors such as negative expectations of treatment or prognosis. And where he's getting at here is the negative press that statins get um, in, 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 in the lay press. And he's got a point, but the reality is, is actually patient perception that matters. It doesn't matter what happens in a trial. If the patient thinks it's a statin, the patient thinks it's a statin. So I think the thing to do, first and foremost, in these groups of patients who feel that they've got statin-related symptoms is just to be clear about what we would expect. Now, typical muscle symptoms related to statins are symmetrical pain in large proximal muscle groups or, large, uh, or weakness. It's worsened by exercise and clearly resolves with D-challenge. And there's a, a level of classification for statin-related muscle to toxicity um, ranging from myalgia that's, that's tolerable without a CK elevation down to um, rhabdomyolysis, which is clearly, clearly life-threatening. So what does one do in a situation where a patient's complaining of muscle symptoms that are compatible with um, potentially a, a statin side effect? So the key, the, the key thing is it, it's really got to be a structured approach. And I think one should go back right from the beginning and actually challenge the indication in the first place. Is this patient actually genuinely a candidate for primary prevention of um, cardiovascular disease with a statin? Because in my view, uh, if with the number needed to treat, if um, the... Uh, it's perfectly reasonable to start patients on this, but as the second they start getting complications, uh, then I think the risk benefit shifts even more away from, from, from benefit. Um, there may be some factors that, um, that will make statin muscle symptoms uh, higher. So they're non-modifiable ones like chronic kidney disease or, or age, but there are modifiable ones. So hypothyroidism, uh, excessive alcohol and certain drug interactions. So one should look at that. Um, it goes without saying that um, we should be looking at um, lifestyle um, and easier said than done um, and clearly um, emphasizing uh, weight loss, exercise and stopping smoking. Um, but the most important thing I think is, a, is a, in this systematic approach is not to immediately stop a patient's statin and put them immediately on another one because they'll lose confidence very quickly. 
Now, this is a pathway actually out of the out of the nice guidelines. It's pretty useful. And the most important thing is that really um, that we decide how to manage these patients is based on symptoms and um, their creatine kinase. So clearly, if their symptoms to them are intolerable, we're going to stop the statin, and there needs to be a decent washout period of between four to six weeks. Or they have a raised CK between these two limits, four and 10 times the upper limit of normal. Again, washout period, has the CK normalized? Yes. Have the symptoms resolved? Yes. Then um, this is likely to be related to a statin. And then we can either re-challenge or re-challenge at a much lower dose. So a tormostatin, 10 milligrams weekly, increasing to twice weekly, three times weekly, and incrementally building it up until there comes a threshold for which they become symptomatic again. Um, if they have substantial increases in their CK, then um, what to do with that is clearly is dependent on their renal function. So um, if it's enormously increased, uh, then rhabdomyolysis is a very serious possibility. If um, their CK does not normalize, there is quite a rare um, autoimmune myopathy that's induced by statins, and that clearly um, requires specialist advice and most um, uh, from the muscle team and the neurologists. I'm rapidly running out of time, so I need to move on. So um, another profile that we might see are patients with a significant hypertriglyceridemia. And um, the issue um, about hypertriglyceridemia is, does it matter? Well, it is an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but actually lowering triglycerides has no impact whatsoever on that. And the only reason we care about it is because of it's a risk factor for acute pancreatitis, and that occurs when patients have persistent triglyceride concentration in the fasting state of, state of greater than 10 millimoles per litre. By far the commonest um, causes for a severe hypertriglyceridemia are alcohol, uh, central obesity, and, and poorly controlled type 2 diabetes mellitus. Now in this particular patient, all he did was abstain from alcohol. What I would like to point out is that in these patients with a severe hypertriglyceridemia, often they have a very high cholesterol as well. And when you control their triglycerides, their cholesterol normalizes, which is the importance of having a full lipid profile. Um, and in those cases, statins don't work because what's increased in those patients are large increases in very low density lipoprotein and chylomicrons. You can only treat chylomicrons by fasting or reduction in fat delivery to the gut, and you can treat VLDL with fibrates, but statins have no impact whatsoever. So I think we're on the home straight. So B12, I think is quite topical. There are lots of causes, uh, many causes of B12 deficiency, in fact, dietary, uh, pernicious anemia, um, short gut, etc. Now, typically, we define these criteria as a low or a deficiency state or a normal or a replete state. But that is um, this binary approach, particularly with B12, um, is, is misleading. As with most tests, there actually is, in truth, a gray zone. Now, we report uh, here um, this with a gray zone between 130 to 160, and then less than 130 is deficiency. But there are catches there, too. And there are, if there's no good reason for someone to be deficient, then we really need to have a think about why that value is low. Because after all, it's just a number. 
And a really common uh, and under underappreciated reason for a low uh, B12 are in females on the oral contraceptive pill or um, pregnancy. So if you've got a patient uh, who um, is in the gray zone um, and they have good reason potentially to be B12 deficient, then we need to assess and prevent them from being on lifelong B12 if we can. And that's when we need a functional assay of B12 status. And vitamin B12s require two reactions. It's a cofactor for this funny enzyme called methionine synthase and also a cofactor for methylmalonate coenzyme A mutase. Um, the bottom line is uh, that um, methionine synthase um, with B12, if, if you're B12 deficient, your homocysteine will go up. So the most practical functional assay used judiciously because it's expensive and it's a specialized test is plasma total homocysteine. And if that is normal, they have not got B12 deficiency and you can ignore the low B12 result. Um, so this is a, a, an interesting case, a 44-year-old lady who was tired and not surprisingly so, she had really quite a profound macrocytic anemia. And GP quite reasonably thought, well, hang on, this is going to be B12 deficiency. But the B12 came back, well, not only normal, but uh, a bit odd that it was actually very high, despite not being on supplementation. And this was repeated on a number of occasions, still with a high B12. Uh, and I was asked to, to pass comment. And actually, homocysteine was really high, and intrinsic factor antibody was really high and this was um, pernicious anemia and she was B12 deficient and the issue around this is that um, in patient, it's an intrinsic factor based assay and the one group of patients we want to diagnose here um, are missed in up to 20%. So that comes back to uh, clinical um, impression you know, it's B12 deficiency until proven otherwise. And, you know, we're very happy in the lab to try and um, help out. And actually, I'm going to stop there. So it's a real rattle through. It's a flavor. It's an, adver uh, an advertisement, hopefully, for the lab. We, are, we do like discussions with GPs. Um, and um, what I would say is, your clinical judgment is better than any test that we can provide. So um, over to Camilla. Wonderful. Thank you. That was a really good overview of um, everything. Um, I'm sure that that has sparked lots of questions, if anyone else. And there was one question in the Q&A box, which was um, about contraceptive pill. Is it the progesterone only and the combined? No, it's the, it's, it's the estrogen component. So, um, it, yeah, combined, and, and that would, that, that's the commonality between the pregnancies. So there's something about oestrogen that stuffs our assay up, for want of a better word. Um, it's a real catch. So it's not to say that these patients aren't B12 deficient, but if you see a low B12 and you think, well, heck, why? Um, then do a homocysteine, a fasting homocysteine, because in the vast majority of females, um, it will be normal. Okay, thank you. There's a couple of questions that have come in. 
Um, and one of them is, could you say something about slightly low calciums and when to worry, e.g. between 2 and 2.2, just okay. on yep. a reasonable time scale? Okay, so I mean, look, if somebody's got a low calcium and it's repeated as low, then it, it should be investigated. And the, the pivotal tests there are, it, it, with any calcium disorder, is, is the measurement of the parathyroid hormone. So if it's, because um, that, that will tell you an enormous amount, be it high or low, the calcium. So if the PTH is low, then actually that suggests that they've got a hypoparathyroidism. And if it's high, it's, then it's secondary. And then the key tests then would be uh, renal function, vitamin D, and actually magnesium. And magnesium's forgotten about. So with the enormous number of people that are on PPIs, not an uncommon side effect of PPIs is PPI-induced hypomagnesemia. And that's often one of the commonest reasons that we see low calciums now. So yeah, if you've got a low calcium and it's repeated low, it should definitely be investigated. And as I say, the key test would be renal function, PTH, uh, and magnesium at that stage. And then depending on those results, um, we'll cascade to other tests. Lovely, thank you. And there's another question. Did you say there are two situations where we need to check fasting lipids? I did. So uh, the first one is where the total cholesterol is greater than 7.5. And the reason for that is that might be heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia. And then one needs to be fasted to get an LDL. And if the LDL is greater than 4.9, then we should progress investigation. And the other one is if the non-fasting triglyceride is greater than 10 millimoles per liter, then we should do a fasting test. And if the fasting triglyceride is below 10, then in itself, that's not a problem. There may be other issues, weight, diabetes, et cetera. But if the fasting triglyceride remains above 10 millimoles per liter, then they should be investigated and treat, treated to prevent acute pancreatitis. Thank you. And does HRT affect the lipid assay? No. That's an easy one. And. Um, Someone else has asked, I was wondering about the effect that things like whey supplements have on creatinine level and renal function in younger people. Whey supplements. So that's the stuff that comes off cheese, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I think it is, isn't it? I think, uh, so I don't, I don't think that will, ha it won't have an impact. Uh, it won't uh, on creatinine, it won't have an impact on how we measure it. To my knowledge, I've not come across that. Um, it's, there's not an interference on the assay. Creatinine is really very directly proportional to muscle mass. Um, and then, of course, um, large protein intake and, and then renal function, clearly. Um, there's, there's another question about creatinine kinase. Would you test it in patients that had mild muscle symptoms on statins or when would you yeah if, well if you think that those muscle symptoms are compatible with um uh statin use then ab absolutely um so i think that's the key i think you know a, a bit of an ache here or a bit of an ache there you know that's a very difficult one and i wouldn't but if the symptoms are very are consistent, so the ones that I mentioned, so more diffuse pain, proximal pain, worse with exercise, definitely, absolutely definitely, because the CK prognosticates for you very nicely about what you should do. You know, if you've got a significantly raised CK, um, then you, 
it need, the statue needs to be stopped. There needs to be a washout period, and then we need to have a think about rechallenge or, or where to, where to take things. And of course, I my focus was on primary prevention, but you know there will be secondary prevention patients as well that we would need to have a think about. And, and is there a time frame? So if someone has been on statins for twenty years, for example, I mean, when are we thinking about? Yeah, that, that would make it unlikely, wouldn't it? I think if there's no other <clears throat> interacting factor, new drug. Um, uh, like I said, alcohol use, um, uh, new onset hypothyroidism, it would make it unlikely. But then, of course, if they've got symptoms that are consistent, then they may have something else going on. So you should still be measuring a CK. You know, they could be having a myopathy for another reason. But no, you're right. I mean, if you've been on statins for a very long period of time and nothing else has, has changed, um, that would be very unlikely. Okay. Um the let me just see um do you have any comments about patients who request more and frequent um whoops that one's just disappeared more and frequent um b12 injections and what would a functional as would a functional assay be helpful and i think i asked you about um you know when we do a blood test on someone that's on B12 injections, their B12 is normally sky high. Yeah. So okay, so this is a big problem, isn't it? So um, there are uh, some faddy forums, for want of a better word, um, where B12 has become very high profile. And um, there is no role for uh, superdosing. Um, there's certainly, you know, if you measure and the B12 is very high in the blood, they're replete. That, that is, is, is simple. Is there a role for, B, for homocysteine as a functional marker? Well, the fact is they will not be B12 deficient if they've got a huge amount of B12 in the blood. The big question, I've had this discussion a few times with GPs, is big question is, would that help the patient and reassure them that everything's fine at a cellular level? And you guys are the best to make that judgment for your own individual patients. If you believe that um, you can explain to the patient that we've got this tissue marker and the homocysteine, and if it's normal, everything's fine, and you honestly think that the patient's going to take that, then then we, we would be happy to entertain that. My feeling is that these things are they're much deeper issues. It's not really about the B12, is it? It's, there's usually other things going on that make them latch on to um b12 if it's not b12 it's biotin if it's not biotin it's something else but you, you know the reality is the b12 and the blood if you're on supplements tells you everything you need to know they're getting b12 and they are safe um but as a counseling measure um it might help thank you and can, can you talk a bit about oral b12 versus yeah. uh, injectables i can so um so again, it does depend on etiology, um, but we know in Europe, actually, that oral B12 is used very, very frequently, even for patients with malabsorption. So um, that is a very reasonable course to go down. So I think if you've got, you know, so let's say they've had small bowel operation, you know you've got to give it parenterally. I think mm. if they've got definite pernicious anemia, I think, you, you know, let's be secure and give them the B12 in a way that you know that they're going to absorb it. 
But if there's a dietary component or an age-related component or a borderline result, then actually, yeah, oral B12 is perfectly acceptable. Um, and um, if, it's, if it's dietary, there's some 50 microgram tablets. And if you really want to be sure, even for malabsorption, actually, 1,000 microgram tablets can be given. And um, I think it's just dogma that's occurred over the years in the UK. Um, I say in lots of European countries, they, use, they do use oral medication. So it has got a role. I think, I think I think it's 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 come about a lot more with COVID because we've been avoiding patients coming into the surgery and we've tried to convert to the oral dosage, but yeah. it's difficult to know the guidelines because there isn't official guidance. Yeah, I did send. Uh, I can't maybe you Camilla. I don't know. Somebody contacted me at the beginning of COVID about this. And I did send them a, a really good Nature Reviews article on, on this, and they, they, you know it was absolutely definitive article and, and oral b12 is very acceptable i think it, it really does depend on what the blinking etiology of this stuff is so yeah. i think that's clear cut i think if you've got if you know that somebody's b12 on b12 because they've had surgery or because they've got pernicious anemia then that's a group that you can compartmentalize away and actually the others uh, i think would be very safe uh, to, to, to put on oral b12 Okay, thank you. And there's one more question about that. How accurate is um, intrinsic factor? If negative, can we be sure it's not just anemia? And what other tests can we do? Okay, so I suppose I've got to be slightly careful here. And I'm a biochemist and not a hematologist, but I do tend to get bounced these things. So intrinsic factor is very specific. Uh, so if you've got intrinsic factor antibodies, you have pernicious anemia, but it's not 100% sensitive. So you absolutely cannot rely on that as a... Uh, as a test to exclude pernicious anemia. And okay. the same, and the parietal cell antibodies lack sensitivity and specificity, actually, so it's not a great test. So okay. it's, a, it's not easy, this. And the good old shilling test uh, has gone. So, yeah, not easy. Okay, we've, we've got another question about how much does plasma homocysteine test cost? Is it a, an expensive test? Yeah, about, about 30 quid. It's not something I want to go down. I, I, I always struggle with this because I know it's, the, it's a good test. It just can We do 5,000 B12s a month. Okay. So, that, uh, and so, it's, a, so it's, a, it's an expensive test and it takes, it's on a semi-automated platform. It's not an automated platform. So it would absolutely sink the, any laboratory. So it has to be used judiciously in patients whereby we don't know and we want to stop them being on long-term B12 if we can. But unfortunately, it cannot be used as a primary screening test. There is a new B12 uh, assay coming out called, well, it's not coming out, it is out, called Active B12. That's slightly better than what we currently offer, but it's still not brilliant in terms of, of being accurate in its diagnosis. Thank you. And, and out of interest, we don't know the cost of any of these tests. So in the sort of biochemistry lab, what are, what are the big, what, what are the most expensive ones and what are the ones that are... <laughs> okay, the dirt, the dirt cheap ones are the so-called bucket chemistry, the creatinines, the sodiums, the potassiums, the enzyme, really cheap. It's the, the more expensive ones are the, um, which again you wouldn't know, are the ones that are measured by antibodies, so-called immunoassays. They tend to be mostly endocrine tests, thyroid function tests, HCG, prolactin, um, troponins, um, yeah. And then the more super-specialized, like the homocysteines and things, become even more expensive. Vitamin D is quite expensive. Um, 
comes down a bit in price because we we do so many of the blinking things. But um, yeah. it's very expensive. They're quite. I think vitamin D is about fourteen pounds. We do hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of those a day. And how, and how much rick? How much rickets is out there in osteomalacia? Because that's something that I just don't come across. Well, there's very little rickets. Um, there is there is osteomalacia out there. Um, not a huge amount, but that 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 would be the. That would be the, you know, the low calcium may well be the first marker. So osteomalacia, disease of adults, as, as opposed to rickets being a disease of children, um, would be characterized by low calcium, very low vitamin D, high alkaline phosphatase, high, high PTH. Um, and it is, it does, you know, it does exist in those high risk groups. That's the point. It exists in the high risk groups. Fantastic. I think we've run out of time and that was a really good sort of overview. So thank you very much for coming and, and giving such a comprehensive talk. We will put your slides on the website, the LMC website, so people can access those um, as needed. Um, what I was just going to do was showcase the LMC website that has um, got the um, recorded webinars if people wanted to see them. Wessex LMC website, this is the home page, and on there, if you look along, there's the educational events. If you click on that, this has got all the different events that are coming up, the training events. <coughs> this um, one, you've got the video and recorded webinars. Um, so if you click on that, we will put this talk into that um, area on the website. And also, there's online training video resources, which are um, also educational um, content that you can look at at a, a later date and the training events showcase all the up and coming webinars that are coming on there's quite a lot on there um, so you can click on those and that will show you where to book onto them my next webinar is a half day webinar and that is in November and that's um, an update on obesity metabolic syndrome tips and cancer referrals so there's lots in the pipeline there's also a genetics webinar coming up and um, lots of other sort of good resources so thank you very much for everyone attending hope you found it useful and interesting do watch it again or um, send any questions I'm sure Paul is very happy to be contacted with yep. and, um, and and we'll see you all soon hopefully thank you thanks Camilla thank you. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.